<laughs> Hello everybody, welcome back. Today I'm going to present to you some paradigm shifting research methods to study consciousness. Now, of course, I realize that saying that something is paradigm shifting. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a very high bar. What do you mean paradigm shifting? And yeah, I mean, like at the risk of you not taking me seriously, I will say, yeah, no, actually, these are innovative ways of studying consciousness that I very much anticipate will, yeah, provide completely new data and support new paradigmatic ways of making sense of consciousness and its role in information processing. But again, <laughs> I am aware some people might not take me very seriously. So actually the quilia of the day today is the quilia of being taken seriously. And I mean, very fittingly, I think this is a silly hat. Um, you know, it's a kind of a, a, an experiment. See if uh, you can, you can take me seriously uh, <laughs> looking like this. Well, so, okay. So like th there's kind of this fascinating thing here, which is that um, because of implicit naive realism about perception, meaning that we tend to feel that we can perceive the world directly as if, you know, there were some kind of like sensory tentacles that get out of our eyes and kind of like touch the environment and, you know, send those signals. And you're in a sense directly perceiving the things around you, which is, yeah, not the case, right? Like we actually inhabit a tiny world simulation rendered by your brain. And no, you, you never actually have direct access to the world, but it looks that way. You know, it was evolutionarily adaptive for the illusion of direct perception to be there. But it actually goes much deeper than that. It's not only about, you know, whether the colors and the shapes that you perceive are like actually, you know, directly being perceived or not. It's also about things such as like your feelings and interpretations. And people don't realize this for the most part until something goes wrong. But the feeling of normalcy, the feeling of this is just normal everyday life. This is totally normal. Well, that is a very specific flavor of consciousness. If you sample a random <laughs> moment of experience possible, most likely you will not have, you know, kind of the feeling of normalcy that we are so used to. And uh, I mean, it, of the drugs out there, you know, psychiatric drugs, I would say, yeah, for the most part, something like SSRIs, are quite capable of, in a sense, painting <laughs> your experience with this feeling of normalcy, something that you can, yeah, basically take seriously at face value. Um, whereas, yeah, you know, something like psychedelics, they, it's, it's very funny, right? Like you take LSD and all of a sudden the world is painted with hilarity and things are hilarious. It actually doesn't matter what you say. If, if there's somebody having a, a laughing fit on LSD, you can literally say something like, you know, hexagon, <laughs> and then it will further their laughing fit. You know, it's kind of a, yeah, I mean, they're in a very susceptible state of consciousness where basically things are very reactive. Um, whatever you present will be experienced as like very, very novel and perhaps like, yeah, worthy of, of like laughing pretty, pretty hard. Um, but again, it's a naive realist, you know, misinterpretation to think that in a sense, you know, LSD allows you to tune in to the humor wavelength or something like that. He's like, well, more is kind of is changing the parameters of your world simulation in such a way that, yeah, basically pretty much any stimuli or inner concept 
it causes a, 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 a kind of like a cascade of reactions. So you're in a very reactive, positive aliens, high arousal state of consciousness, you know, embedded with humor and qualia. So yeah, uh, which is to say, when you fail to take something seriously, it may actually be a mistake, almost kind of a perceptual mistake of, uh, you know, classification. You're misclassifying an input as perhaps not worth of consideration where maybe it actually was very critically important. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, uh, and the methods I'll describe in a bit uh, are like that. Okay, so um, being taken seriously. So in the communities that I tend to hang out in, and there's a few actually kind of complementary uh, you know, from like, yeah, people very into art and meditation and then, you know, people in the rationalist or effective altruism community, you know, people in academia doing AI work or cognitive science. And yeah, basically, um, they sometimes say actually very silly things um, that they say them very earnestly, but that they may be perceived as essentially like the sort of thing that like a child would say. So, for example, Something that is a very big deal in kind of the rationalist community is this idea that death is actually bad, you know? And it's something that a five-year-old can understand. You know, death is bad. It would be wonderful if we could all live forever. I actually remember wishing to God <laughs> when I was like five years old that I wish everybody alive will never die, you know, or something like that. But then, you know, you grow up and, and, and you hear so many rationalizations. Uh, I, I highly recommend, yeah, the, the fable of the dr dragon tyrant. Uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky also has like some pretty good writings about these. Uh, or Aubrey de Grey. Yeah, but basically there's like a lot of really good material showing that, yes, no, people are actually just rationalizing what they consider, you know, either a necessary good or they perceive it as like logically entailed or perhaps God's will or whatnot. But, uh, but no, I mean, like as soon as we actually have, you know, rejuvenation technologies, that are like cheap, everybody will use them just as, yeah, no matter how much, you know, evangelizing and proselytizing somebody who, you know, believes in the afterlife or so on, uh, and who believes in graceful aging and so on. Yeah, and they have a miracle pomade <laughs> that actually gets rid of the wrinkles. Yeah, people use it, you know, there's tremendous double standards between, yeah, the high level philosophy and the actual day to day preferences that people show. So that, that's one thing, you know, again, like a child will say that is bad. A normal person, a smart, well-educated individual will say like, Yo, you know, there's deep reasons for why death is good, even though it doesn't feel that way. And then like even smarter people <laughs> who actually look at the problem and can dissociate from the group mind will basically realize, yeah, no, actually death was bad all along. <laughs> it was just a rationalization. Well, the same is with, for example, intelligence. They're like, yeah, no, actually increasing your intelligence is good. <laughs> of course, you, there's a lot more to intelligence than IQ. But if there's something that you can take that keeps everything else equal, but gives you a boost of 20 points of IQ, do it. It's actually going to make your life way better. You're going to understand way many more things way faster. And I mean... Where, where it's interesting is where there's like trade-offs as in like, okay, maybe it will make you a very rigid systematizer or something like that. And you might lose empathy. Like, okay, sure. But all else being equal, yeah, no, having higher IQ is, is better. It's, it's actually just plain better. <laughs> it's like being healthier, just plain better. Uh, the other one is, uh, uh, you know, is there such a thing as true beauty? Again, like, yeah, a five-year-old might, might say yes. 
but then you know n not today the, the standard kind of postmodern ideologies like no 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 you know beauty's in the eye of the beholder and so on but yeah no then there's the counter signaling the 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 kind of a additional layer where you realize well actually sure beauty is in the eye of the beholder but then we can look into the beholder and examine the ways in which beauty qualia the the raw sensation of beauty what is that and like yeah maybe if even if you're experiencing very different stimuli than somebody else uh you know stimuli that you consider aversive somebody else might consider you know beautiful the claim would be if they're actually reporting their phenomenology accurately they're not lying or deceiving you about their experience of beauty <laughs> there's some reason to do that as well obviously um then yes i mean most likely the actual qualia of it there will be some kind of isomorphic relationship between both experiences even though the stimuli is very different of course at qri we have hypotheses for that you know what that might be uh, and something that we take very seriously um and uh also you know happiness you know it for most people you know most five-year-olds is like yeah i want to be happy all the time and then there's a lot of rationalizations for why it's bad if we are happy all the time and of course we can still man it and i think there's like some pretty good you know steel mans for like why at least in our current condition it's good to actually have access to the full range of human experience but no i mean objectively speaking if it was possible to live by without you know depression and anxiety and chronic pain and so on it would actually be just plain better <laughs> and you know this is uh again you actually have to be smart and be able to disengage from the dumb group mind that is only rationalizing its way of life and actually you know look at it directly and carefully and like yeah no actually happiness is good <laughs> let's let's get more of it let's uh, create the conditions for long-term sustainable happiness okay so um yeah and uh scott alexander in a, in a in an article about you know intellectual hipsters and meta contrarians he yeah kind of like finds this general uh kind of like tendency of like well okay there's like kind of maybe a default position or an obvious position then like in order to signal sophistication and intelligence you kind of like take the somewhat counterintuitive perspective but then if you want to distinguish yourself from kind of the people in that layer then you in some sense you can use as a social strategy signaling the obvious thing again and say hey actually <laughs> you were overcorrecting with your rationalizations and and, and whatnot and uh, yeah i mean you will find definitely a lot of the things that we say at the qualia research institute uh, or that you can find in our you know blogs and publications and so on are of that sort are kind of yeah this thing that maybe sounds obvious but it's actually very sophisticated and very difficult to justify properly with you know the adequate you know scientific paradigms and uh, interpreted interpretive lenses and the right philosophy and ends up being something very very non-trivial such as for example yeah like the correspondence between symmetry and pleasure it's a very non-trivial case to make actually if you do it properly <laughs> but it sounds like something that a five-year-old might say you know it's yeah oh i just like more symmetrical butterflies or something like that it's like therefore <laughs> symmetry must be connected with happiness it's like no actually the case is far more sophisticated than that and by the way i will definitely be making a video about kind of a the super titanium or high entropy alloy case uh man case for for the symmetry theory of valence so like yeah uh mean to look out for that but uh but yeah i mean okay so uh again when something looks very silly to you especially if it's being like described by somebody who's 
Viola is pretty smart. Maybe, maybe consider, okay, are they perhaps, you know, counter signaling? Are they perhaps uh, kind of like already digging into account the obvious, you know, criticisms of, of that view and going further? And again, yes, in, in many of these cases, that is uh, what's happening here. Um, also, I mean, there's this very interesting kind of like counter signaling component here where like, for example, Peter Thiel in zero to one, you know, he describes how, yeah, I mean, real tech people, they don't dress in suits and they don't, you know, they, they don't care about looking like, you know, very serious individuals. They just dress in t-shirts and sometimes even just, you know, pants or, you know, yoga pants or whatever it may be. Like it, it actually doesn't matter. Like they were just optimizing for convenience for ease and flexibility of mind and affect so that you can do you know write good code and not getting distracted by all of these like yeah social signaling stuff which is yeah basically just a distraction from somebody who's a, an actual you know computer computer nerd <laughs> um so yeah uh t-shirts uh now of course the wheel of fashion you know now of course after the publication of zero to one and you know the silicon valley culture being consumed worldwide and so on then yeah actually having a t-shirt is not a good signal anymore you know you, you've got to find what is in vogue for you to actually signal that you are at the cutting edge of technology and or you know cutting edge of thinking or science on a particular subject um but yeah i mean interestingly i, I would say um if you are the sort of person who will just dismiss the idea of somebody simply because of how they look, you know, or perhaps like how they sound or something like that, maybe we don't want to be friends anyway, right? So there is kind of the sense of a, perhaps it's actually not a bad strategy to dress like clowns in order to discuss neuroscience. <laughs> because then you know that the people who are here actually dressed as clowns, they actually care about the subject matter, not the aesthetic, of high status that comes with yeah i don't know just dressing very formally or whatever it may be <laughs> so so again yes i expect all of the member all the people who just show up to a qri party to be dressed like a clown no I'm, I'm joking actually you can dress whatever way you want it's totally fine don't worry about it um but yeah i mean if you look at for example like very interesting conversations that may happen at burning man uh i've been very lucky to have had the chance of attending burning man in, in camp soft landing and yeah, I mean, you actually get to meet with actually, you know, like world renowned, like scientists doing like psychedelic research in academic settings, or for example, the CEO of like very important large companies or, you know, serial entrepreneurs and everybody, you know, actually like you could describe it like very serious people in many ways and like obviously quite successful, both socially and <laughs> in, yeah, causal reality as well. And then like, you know, they're dressed like a pirate or like a magician or whatever. And like you're having this conversation in a super hot environment and dehydrating. And basically the whole thing <laughs> looks entirely, completely off, you know, relative to something like, you know, the respectability of an academic institution. And yet <laughs> you find world class, you know, best kinds of conversations exactly in that kind of medium because you've experienced a kind of social phase transition or phase change where people are not like actually super guarded about their status. And in that environment, you actually can create free flow of information in and ideas and kind of like building on top of other people's ideas. Yeah, because it doesn't feel like the, the stakes are very high or the people are in a sense like attacking your, 
your sense of, uh, I don't know, honor, whatever it may be, right? So there is, there is actually a, a very high value in creating kind of like pockets of silliness for the purpose of, you know, giving rise to these like social phase transition where information flow, the rules of information flow change. Now, of course, there's like adversarial ways of doing that. There are ways in which you can, unfortunately, perhaps like take advantage of people by, by kind of like creating that context and extracting information or things like that. But no, if it's gone, if it's actually done in good faith by people who are like very, you know, high quality thinkers or very high quality, I don't know, artists or whatever it may be. No, it actually can become a super positive sum, sum game. Like not only some you know positive sum in the sense of on average you know everybody's winning but maybe even super positive sum in the sense like everybody who participates in it actually wins and yes i mean i i do think there's a lot of potential there um another thing yeah to <laughs> to mention is um uh you know status anxiety definitely drives so much of human activity right um so yeah i mean like looking very silly or saying things that are like very silly uh, like outside of the social norms of a particular context can yeah legitimately be perceived as a kind of a status attack on on people right because people might be like very finely tuned to a particular set of signals i mean think of for example in american psycho handing out uh yeah the the, the business cards and it's like these ridiculous you know it's like yeah the watermark really matters and the precise positioning and, and the texture of the paper and so on and like yes those are beautiful maybe quillia distinctions like subtle and so on but like yeah no it's it's actually you know obviously just a status player and just not very interesting I mean, the same as like i would say <laughs> wine wine tasting actually for for in, in a lot of cases it's actually i don't think it's done for these subtleties of the qualia i think it's just in usually done from kind of a mating mind way of signaling how sophisticated and actually how wealthy you are that you're able to afford this time and yeah you know like very very you know have a broad experience base of like fine wines not particularly useful even not particularly useful within quillia research so yeah but anyway uh but yeah i mean if, if you come in dressed like a clown to yeah basically a dinner party where actually people you know the status of people is measured by you know the particular tie that they're wearing or or like in you know military decorations like how many stars do you have or is this folded this way or folded that way like kind of victorian style you know manners and aesthetics and uh, etiquette and so on yeah no you're disrupting things very severely and, and in that sense yeah they might be uh, pissed <laughs> they might be pissed at you if you do that so <laughs> um of course, again, yeah, people don't care that much about it. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be difficult being uh, being friends in, in, in that case. Um, of course, also like looking in a very non-serious way is a way of uh, signaling personality traits. I mean, obviously right now I'm signaling to some extent like high openness to experience. And yeah, no, truth be told, in tests of the big five personality factors, I consistently score 99 percentile in openness to experience and i mean probably i wouldn't be able to do the sort of research that i do <laughs> without being so overwhelmingly cu be curious about like exotic experiences and so on so yeah i mean undoubtedly you know like if you kind of like are wondering who in a particular social gathering smokes pot <laughs> Yeah, the number of colors in their hat will probably be highly correlated with that, you know, and even if they're wearing 
a hat at all and you know anyway like th things of that sort yeah i i do expect that there to be quite a quite a correlation and uh it's for yeah very deep you know deep deep reasons yeah so now uh looking silly can also be used to create new social contexts and in that sense i think you can see it as antisocial, like disrupting pre-existing contexts, but also it's very pro-social in the sense of creating new safe spaces in order to, yeah, be in a different way. And uh, again, yeah, I mean, the status algorithm of a community is just so overwhelmingly important when it comes to like, what is the what is it that the community actually generates? That, I, I mean, personally, I do think that, yeah, basically fostering um, a community that actually cares about, yeah, creativity and, and the quality and the feel of social interactions that, they don't feel particularly rigid or like these like high stakes, stressful, status driven situations. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's conducive to good, you know, science or good relationships. So, yeah, in that sense, uh, yeah, the silliness, I, I actually think it's a, in those cases, a very pro-social thing. Very, very, very pro-social. Um, also, I mean, status anxiety manifests in other ways. There's this perfume called club de nuit uh intense by armoff and it's actually pretty beautiful i really like the smell but the the whole marketing the whole way in which people use this i mean it's also obviously a clone of um uh creed aventus which is a 300 dollar perfume that Essentially, the only reason why people buy it is so that they can say that they own a, you know, Creed Aventus. And also because, I mean, it is a distinctive smell. It's not the best smell, obviously. It's distinctive and not maximizing valence. Um, there's like other perfumes that do kind of like maximize valence. Uh, <laughs> a quick one might be like Dylan Blue by Versace, for example. Uh, if you're actually much more into kind of like the valence of the, the experience as opposed to distinctiveness or, or loudness. Uh, again, I, I talked about this in the Aromatic Fougere video that uh, uh, some perfumes are like very loud in the sense that they span the entire kind of spectrum. And yeah, in an elevator, whoever wears the loudest perfume in a sense, yeah, will be the, the one that you can remember, that the one that, you can, that actually, you know, you, you, you were able to smell. smell. So um, Club de Nuit is very loud. It's very loud. And it smells almost identical to Creed Aventus. And um, yeah, basically the only reason why somebody would be wearing this perfume is to relieve status anxiety. <laughs> now, in terms of the qualia, qualia of high status, uh, I think this is awesome. Um, Azaro Pur Om is one of the aromatic fougeres. And all aromatic fougeres, honestly, are kind of like status anxiety relief uh, tools. And even again, you know, it's such a large bottle too. But uh, but these one, I would say, like not only the marketing, but also the qualia itself, gives you this feeling of like wise, powerful, masculine energy that knows what's up. You know, kind of like the head honcho type. Yeah, no, it's quite impressive actually. It's a very impressive scent, and it's very beautiful. But it's very very status driven <laughs> from my assessment my reading my sniff uh, so um yeah so there's that you know and uh if instead you wear something you know i don't know like just you smell like a like pear or you smell like you know cherry blossom or something unusual you know especially unusual for like a man or something yeah yeah then uh that's another way of basically not to not be taken seriously uh of course it depends you know if you go to a place like where 
people actually are like cologne aficionados or you know i don't know something like that and you wear a zaro per ohm probably people will look down on you to be honest um because they will think oh this person is just you know has low self-esteem or something of the sort you know but um but no i mean i i i i very much think that uh we can respect people's um status anxiety and kind of like try to work around it and, and be pro-social uh in in instead by creating safe spaces that yeah have a lot less of that yeah unfortunate rigidity that that, that takes place um importantly looking silly also um messes with the energy parameter and this is like what makes it quite similar with um uh, psychedelics actually uh they're like prediction errors in general um uh generate like energy spikes and if you have like a sufficiently concentrated set of prediction errors uh in a particular modality it can actually trigger a high energy state of consciousness so i mean quite literally uh going around in burning man uh, even without drugs it, it, it feels kind of psychedelic after a couple hours because of all the constant novelty like genuine novelty that you are being exposed to and um, and high energy states of consciousness, in a sense, eventually give rise to neural annealing, where basically it unsettles um, your state such that you can explore more quickly, basically something that we call neural search, explore more quickly other configurations, basically in higher energies. Yeah, you can transition from one state to another much more easily. Um, analogies with yeah chemistry and heating up uh, heating up a substance like are, are, are like that that like basically reactions are more likely to happen with some caveats at high higher temperatures so um and in the case of the human consciousness essentially being in a high energy state of consciousness unsettles your state and allows you to explore new configurations that may actually in the end give rise to better fit uh, in a sense like a better constraint satisfaction of yeah the parameters of your life the you know the likes and dislikes of those you <laughs> you love and, and care about and also you know the constraints of your life you may actually find a better solution to all of that um, or may allow you to emotionally update in some important perhaps helpful way and yeah i mean like uh the silliness of a place like like burning man or ephemeral or any of these like fun kind of like especially you know uh, volunteer-driven, you know, artist-driven and techie kind of uh, festivals, they're so packed full with crazy novelty and, like, you know, fun things that are just not commercial, you know. They're, they're actually just somebody in their backyard is creating these <laughs> really fun, I don't know, like, you know, dinosaur made of metal type structure that you, you know, breathes fire and whatnot and is full of LEDs and yeah, all of that like unsettles, unsettles your state and allows you to basically do neural search and uh, and update emotionally. So a lot of people, you know, in these festivals, they will say something like, oh, my faith in humanity was regained. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of amazing. Um, and, and in that sense, yeah, I mean, looking silly, uh, the anneals a worldview it, it kind of like shows that yeah you're not like so committed to it that you actually again you don't care about the number of stars or like this is folded this way or that way like no forget about all of that let's actually just have fun and and have good good life transforming conversations yeah kind of like crossing across yeah barriers of uh of a uh, of local status gridlock which is uh yeah so unfortunate in many situations uh, importantly too worldviews are 
oftentimes incapable of metabolizing new kinds of stress. So, um, I mean, in a sense, like a worldview is one way of dealing with <laughs> the stress of life. And uh, oftentimes a worldview will be highly adapted to a specific set of parameters, kind of like a particular type of job with a particular type of coworkers and expectations and so on. And if something very outlandish out of that kind of like environment uh, interacts with you, uh, all of a sudden your worldview may be actually incapable of metabolizing the new sources of stress and uncertainty that this interaction is generating. And yeah, in that sense, um, eventually if the worldview is, is not very resilient, it can crack, it can actually break, it can fragment and that process is actually very painful. Um, but if you're aware of, for example, neural annealing, uh, and especially if you've you know tried psychedelics in the past, you at least know what this process is like. And you can recognize like, oh gosh, you know, kind of the top level nodes in the way I'm interpreting the world. Uh, they're not capable of absorbing the stress they used to. <laughs> um, and the stress is of a new kind. So perhaps actually what you need is a re-annealing of your worldview where like, you know, either in a meditation retreat or with the right substance or with the right kind of therapy, maybe even like non-invasive neural stimulation as the sort of thing that we were exploring at QRI. Yeah, I mean, it may allow you to integrate that information and do the necessary and appropriate, you know, remodeling of your internal conception of the world such that like, yeah, the new kinds of stress can actually be metabolized and dissipated. And uh, yeah, I mean, to some extent, I would say <laughs> a lot of the crazy cultural changes that, you know, happen when you expose people to psychedelics, to some extent is because they require those changes in order to be able to metabolize the crazy energies of, of psychedelics. And so that legitimately they, they do a kind of the crazy re-annealing um, that actually works at a meta level because it doesn't only allow you to, in a sense, change your worldview in a way to incorporate the information from psychedelics themselves, but also actually change your worldview to a new kind of meta worldview that is more flexible and able to incorporate data that contradicts its tenets uh, in, a, in a more efficient and uh, uh, robust way. So uh, that as a skill, by the way, I think it's uh, fantastic. You know, if you can develop the skill of worldview annealing not to double down on your worldview, but actually to be able to metabolize new forms of stress. That is going to be, yeah, something that will really multiply your, your psychological resilience. So yeah, I definitely highly recommend that. Um, and to avoid overly rigid worldviews. Yes. So um, I guess uh, one of the yeah last things that I'll say about being taken seriously, and I know I've been talking about this for half an hour, <laughs> probably doesn't help uh, in, in this context. But yeah, I mean, okay, so uh, it's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like if you, if you, if you want to, you know, dress like this or dress in another funky way and, and you, you know, attending a, a, an important gathering, <laughs> your mom says, I'm not taking you dressed like that. But, you know, the, the proper response is like, but mom, I'm counter signaling, you know, and that always works. Um, 
which is actually what I imagine Mario Montano, you know, telling his uh, his mom. Well, Mario Montano, rest in peace. Uh, somebody, you know, maybe in kind of this uh, people cluster that unfortunately is not with us anymore. But um, he has like some very interesting videos on YouTube <laughs> where basically he talks about like philosophical issues. Um, a very deep philosophy, uh, similar to my videos, uh, but completely shirtless. Um, and he actually has a video of like why I am shirtless and he's the most watched video in his channel and his answer is like he's counter signaling uh, he's <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it, I'm not sure if it works but for sure you know attracts attention and um, yeah I, I respect that you know I respect Mario Montano being shirtless and sure as hell I would respect you know a very famous neuroscientist you know actually dressing up as a clown for a conference i actually would find quite um quite honorable let's put it this way to to be able to do that okay so now on to paradigm shifting methods in consciousness research and actually there's like more than what i'm going to talk about um and some of the actually most exciting and beautiful things are things that um they are not yet for public consumption they're too early so you know in six months i'll you know the list will actually be significantly longer but these paradigms on their own i think already yeah give us like so much juicy information um so i'll preface this by you know okay so we, we hopefully we all know about the structure of scientific revolutions and thomas kuhn uh yeah very famous book and um you know there's a lot of like philosophy of science that tries to figure out basically what allows science to update and yeah i mean the one of the quotes that comes from yeah the uh structure of scientific revolutions is that basically science advances one funeral at a time because once a scientist has been in a sense already fit their worldview for a particular paradigm whenever they encounter new information what they try to do is metabolize you know those prediction errors with their current paradigm and again if it is the predictions errors are like so large and so consistent and reliable that your paradigm actually can't deal with them um it may break your paradigm it may actually break your motivation to do the work but it's actually rare for people to update like especially as people become older like once they are like settling their ways of course you know neuroplasticity drugs and psychedelics and i think like heightened meditation and so on all of those are probably like yeah quite important tools that you know if you're in your 60s and you know that you know people are shifting to a different paradigm um honestly like taking a psychedelic with all caveats and you know you may develop schizophrenia and so on but yeah no like let's say like there is kind of like a, a safe way of doing it or you actually have experienced it before and like it's always worked out fine with you no i mean actually yeah uh, exploring a new paradigm while on an exotic state of consciousness like those induced by psychedelics uh, may actually allow you to re-anneal your worldview in a way that incorporates that new data and honestly yeah i mean the the problem solving capacity of, of psychedelics uh are is very unexplored very important but even more than that i think is yeah the the kind of the capacity to emotionally update um your worldview that is even uh, unexplored and i think in that sense yeah 
psychedelics may actually turn out to enhance science in completely counterintuitive ways by having like people who are in their 60s able to read the papers <laughs> of the people who are yeah, basically doing like cutting edge research in their undergraduate, you know, degree and so on. So, um, but yeah, so um, paradigms in science. So one way of describing what enables a new paradigm is either one of the following three things, which is new data, like, okay, you didn't, you know, find a new way of gathering data, you just happen to be lucky and gather the right data that, you know, maybe contradicts previous theories or contradicts, you know, um, goes against predictions that previous theories were making. Second is new methods. You actually invent new methods in some sense that is like upstream of new data, but you actually could gather new data without gathering, creating a new method. So there are conceptually distinct and optimizing for either leads to, you know, different kind of research uh, programs. Um, but yeah, so uh, inventing new methods. And um, uh, the third one is finding a completely new compression, like, which is, yeah, basically a new way of modeling all of the data that you have um, by essentially uh, finding a better model that uh, has better cross-validation scores. And again, you know, I was a statistician in industry for several years. And if there is one aspect of statistics that I would say everybody should learn and, you know, even people who are very familiar with, yeah, statistics or advanced statistics, they, I don't think they necessarily realize like how centrally important this concept is. It's cross-validation where basically uh, you take 80% of your data, you train a model with that data, and then you apply that model to the 20% that it wasn't trained with. And then you repeat this over and over. And if you, you know, if you have like very little data, you can do this paradigm called, you know, odd one out prediction, where you take like a single data point <laughs> out, and then you train the model of every other data point. And then you try to predict that one data point. And uh, you, you know, you repeat that over for every data point or something like that. The reason cross-validation oftentimes is like 80-20 is uh, for computational tractability. So that you just do it five times and, you know, get the total score. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, if you actually don't care about, you know, the, the computational um, overhead, if that is like very cheap um, and you do have um, the ability to do so, then yeah, the odd one out is just actually strictly better. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, in a sense, this allows you to prevent both overfeeding and underfeeding that like basically because the predictions that you're making are on data that you didn't use for training you know and of course like in, in actual science this is going to be much more tricky because everybody has access to the same data but you know and this is the first of the methods not one that we actually do at QRI but I think it would be really fascinating for a new kind of science would be actually cross-validation at the institutional level where let's say you train uh, physicists on actually only 80% of the field. And there's like a few aspects of the you know field of physics that you literally just never touch uh, like any data. <laughs> and then you see, you know, if with the 80% of data and paradigms and, you know, strategies and heuristics and so on that you train them with, can they actually solve the other 20%? And uh, the same with, yeah, for example, like a new, new paradigm that like, if, if you want to test, you know, how good a person is at, you know, biology or something like that, you shouldn't, you know, just like hand them in all the, you know, inferences and all the data and all the theories and see how well they can remember it. 
what you should do is like hand them 80% of it and see if they can predict the other 20%. <laughs> and yeah, and that says you're treating people as models all of their own, you know, their entire brain as kind of like a, a possible model that you can train with, uh, with data. Uh, anyway, that's, that's an interesting uh, paradigm. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, kind of independent of the, or parallel, sorry, uh, orthogonal. This can be applied in any area. It's not a consciousness research specific paradigm. Um, but to give you a, a, a taste, so, so um, a reason why actually at QRI we are capable of, you know, I think like legitimately advancing the science of consciousness is because we take seriously exotic states of consciousness that, you know, when somebody says I'm seeing, you know, blue sparkles and the flickering rate is 17 hertz, um, most neuroscientists would say like, okay, you know, reporting the, you know, the subject is reporting uh, hallucinations or something like that. Whereas us, it would be like, oh, really? Tell us more. Like, how do you know it's 17 hertz? And, you know, showing another 17 hertz, you know, flicker and see like, is this actually match the correct frequency? Um, I mean, in a sense, like taking people's phenomenological descriptions very seriously. Now, in science, um, unfortunately, you know, there was a paradigm, you know, shift that happened with uh, behaviorism where basically before that people used to take actually self-reports quite seriously. But unfortunately, people are bad phenomenologists for the most time. And also there's a lot of missing developmental stages in even in advanced researchers, uh, for example, naive realism and therefore yeah basically reporting hallucinations tends to generate very low quality data and actually it makes a lot of sense to dismiss you know the overwhelming majority of trip reports uh because they emphasize the wrong thing you know they they may describe something like i saw a, a fairy and a dragon and and it was breathing fire th things of that sort or like take me to a tunnel and you know taught me you know all of my scenes and i should repent things of that flavor but all of that is semantic content all of that is narrative you know the fact that you know you saw a, a fairy and you flew with a dragon doesn't tell us what the experience felt like right it only tells us the semantic content of it and so yeah i mean if, if you have like a million trip reports all of them reporting semantic content exclusively uh but no like phenomenal character nothing about the texture of the experience then you're not actually learning anything new. I mean, like you're learning a little bit. I mean, it is somewhat helpful to know that, let's say like salvia gives rise to like hallucinations of clocks at a higher frequency than DMT or something like that. Like sure, like that's useful to some extent, but if you have like a trained high quality, you know, phenomenologist and like a, somebody who is really good at actually paying attention to their experience and kind of like has hooked up their verbal module to every aspect of their experience and they practiced. And then they take something like, you know, salvia and they report, I am experiencing an overlay of 12 Hertz mixed in with 17 Hertz. And I'm experiencing the beat patterns and the beat patterns over this length and they're cycling through. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> that data, that's really important data. That's beautiful data. And currently, yeah, in neuroscience, that's not being taken seriously. There's no big research program where people are actually kind of investigating the lawful behavior of these hallucinations and actually what is the underlying nature of it. Yeah, there's there's no large scale research program. That's what we're doing at QRI. And it's 
yeah, in a sense, it's a, a you know, it's a distinguishing feature of us that we actually are kind of a, a beacon of smart people who, who we're counter signaling and saying, no, actually, that data does matter. It is important and it is insightful. And actually, <laughs> it may even be the case that many of these exotic states of, states of consciousness have actual pragmatic benefits and are perhaps even better at specific kinds of information processing even to the extent that you know processing particular emotional difficulties may actually be facilitated by these states and understanding why seems to be tremendously consequential so anyway we take seriously so um and of course you can take my <laughs> attire as like you know evidence that i actually know what i'm talking about here so one of the uh for example pieces of data that you know my god i take very seriously is that if you take DMT, let's say something like 10 to 20 milligrams, so you land somewhere kind of in the um, magic eye level, which is the, the third level of the densities of consciousness on DMT. Um, basically, if you look at this object or another hyperbolic honeycomb, it's going to give rise to a particular very weird glitching of your visual system, where basically it's very strange but like basically makes this item kind of like pop out of the visual field as if there was kind of like an additional dimension and vibrate in a particular weird way that generates copies of it and those copies glitch in a way that um generates a very strange ring that is dissonant it is actually unpleasant and it kind of discombobulates the visual field around it um, and it adds this additional dimension and it's unpleasant is a it's a low you know negative valence effect but it's ro robust like it, it it happens with a high probability if you see an object like this why is that the case we don't know but this is exactly the sort of data point that at qualia research and you know <laughs> yours truly take very seriously uh, you know, especially if it's the report is provided by somebody who has a track history of reliable phenomenology such that like, yeah, you know, I guess this is something uh, to mention as well that, yeah, I mean, basically I um, test people's phenomenological skills and in, in a way that is quite similar to cross-validation. Like, for example, if they, um, uh, I ask them to share, you know, like descriptions of particular states of consciousness and there's even specific things that I don't talk about online and I have not written about that are like important phenomenological um, regularities and patterns that I see whether the other person also has noticed them. And of course, if they have, then yes, I mean, that's a uh, huge points, you know, under phenomenological assessment. And uh, uh, yeah, basically, I do happen to know, thanks to, you know, the life project that I'm involved in <laughs> people who I would describe as like world-class phenomenologists like actually the people who if you, they see a flickering light and they can tell you yeah that's probably eight to nine hertz and that they're like right within like a margin of error of like two hertz or something like that um, and that's just like actually talking about a low level perceptual effect there's like just so much more of phenomenology when it comes to things such as like high level aesthetics or the phenomenology of space and time phenomenology of self anyway there's like a lot of categories and of course there is a kind of like overall 
you know, factor, <laughs> like how good are you phenomenology in general across the board? But then, yeah, somebody can be like really good at visual phenomenology and be terrible at like tactile phenomenology. But uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of like similar to IQ tests and things like these where like, yeah, all of these things are obviously correlated, but outliers sometimes are like specialists. Like there's sometimes like an outlier who's like amazing at the phenomenology of piano for example yeah and but maybe they're not good at other things so uh anyway we take uh high quality phenomenological reporting very seriously which is in the category of new data that like for example we the hyperbolic geometry of dmt experiences and so on yeah that comes from like a, a very serious back and forth with you know math phd from mit and again like yeah very high iq people um and uh and you know, it's not a one-off thing, but it's kind of like this uh, investigating over the course of years and making sure that the reports are actually accurate and then like cross-checking across people. And yeah, I mean, when, you know, I write or gave a presentation about the hyperbolic geometry of DMT experiences at, at Harvard, it's not just something that, you know, kind of like came to me like on a random day. Like, no, this is the outcome of a very serious long-term project of gathering these uh the reports and actually comparing them with yeah my own phenomenology and um yeah anyway so to my knowledge that doesn't exist you know in academic philosophy in academic neuroscience cognitive science like no 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 the the as good as it gets is like this phenomenological you know uh, rep uh, tests or or, uh, or scales, like for example, the mystical experience questionnaire or something like that. Um, anyway, so we take very seriously exotic states of consciousness, but it's not, I mean, that is like the number one reason why we have actually more data. Like we literally have way more data than other, you know, cutting edge neuroscience labs. Uh, and I would say like other communities too, like, I would say like, you know, Buddhist monasteries, they may have like really good like meditation data, but do they have 5-MeO DMT phenomenology data? No, <laughs> they don't. Uh, so yeah, I mean, just uh, sounding arrogant, but actually, you know, I'm, I'm very, very, very actually believe it is that, yeah, no, I mean, QRI would say is the place that has the most high quality data, both from the point of view of strict neuroscience, neuroimaging, but also phenomenology. Um, and this brings me to method number yeah one uh, within the ones that I want to talk to you about today, which is uh, extremely good phenomenology. So uh, basically, there's many kinds of ways of approaching the question of phenomenology. But uh, just to give you an example and to not take infinite time here, uh, Shenzhen Young, uh, you know, he breaks down one's experience into six kind of windows, which are you know, see, hear, and feel with their corresponding internal and external components. So there is a outer see, which is kind of like what you're seeing in your visual field when you open your eyes, but then there's like an inner see. Now, somebody with aphantasia, they may not have much of an inner see, kind of like an inner sense of uh, space and, 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 and time and location and geometric relationships. And there's like people who have like super strong visualization skills. They can close their eyes and almost as vivid or perhaps even as vivid as when they have their eyes open, they can imagine, I don't know, a dodecahedra. Or if you have like really advanced, you know, visualization skills um, and concentration as well, you may be able to, you know, actually experience something like this 
in very high detail and that's really cool um but yeah so that's the the the, the c component um inner and outer there's also here there's like the outer here which feels like it's outside in the world again that's naive realism in reality even the things that feel outside of you are part of your inner world simulation um so the you know outer hearing is actually inner hearing of the outer flavor <laughs> hopefully that makes sense uh, and likewise there is inner hearing such as like inner dialogue but also kind of like subtle rumbling and, and subtle feelings of um temporal shifts of energy that are kind of like subliminally close to audio qualia but may not actually be rendered as audio qualia so that, that's also inner here um and then there's like feeling which is like body sensation would be the outer component and there is the emotional body which would be the inner component so and they reflect each other they're kind of in that dynamic system relationship uh whereas one influences the other now where is scent um again they're not paying <laughs> me for it it's it's kind of good it's kind of good so scent scent i think it's shenzhen young may classify that actually as uh inner sorry outer feel i mean he would break it down further like each of these categories have like their own subdivisions um now uh but but yeah i mean this is kind of like a roll up to these categories and with very good phenomenology for example um uh the idea is that you can describe with very very high precision exactly where within that map you're experiencing something or even better to what extent and in what kinds of ways you're experiencing coupling between these different modalities so for example uh as i've talked about before like one of the reasons why dmt feels so real is because of multimodal coherence that basically your tactile feelings your visual qualia and your auditory field they interlock with one another and create multimodally coherent percepts and in that sense they pass a lot of kind of reality checks but like even in in, in dreaming and and uh, in other you know sleep paralysis and things like that you, you can sometimes like tell and test that the state is hallucinatory because you see a lack of congruence between the different sense modalities but on dmt you know anything above magic eye or at magic eye level or above is multimodal coherent so it actually feels like an integrated reality that is self-consistent and yeah i mean that really throws off you know naive reality tests for for most people and it really feels yeah very real like you're contacting another dimension for for that reason um so reporting the coupling between the various sense modalities is an important aspect of high quality phenomenology also having kind of a and people will have different vocabulary eventually we will actually uh provide a glossary and a lexicon for all of these but yeah basically um uh, being able to describe your experience in terms of energy flow like in what way energy is flowing from one modality to another is it concentrating aggregating dissipating twisting um is are there like patterns of stress or in what way is the stress being dissipated all of these are you know things that actually can have like very technical descriptions and i do think that yeah i mean the the future of kind of a high quality consciousness research will involve people becoming really good at describing the flow of energy in their sensorium in the entirety of their experience uh but 
that's not all. Actually, uh, the CDNS paradigm that we use at Qualia Research uh, actually allows us to have even better descriptions here. Uh, and you can use it to describe sound. So the idea is that, you know, you may hear like a weird, weirdly textured sound. Uh, and you may, like most people will have no way of describing it or replicating it. But if you have, for example, the language of noise, dissonance and consonance across the spectrum and their various flavors, then you can say like, oh, this particular texture of sound seems to be a mixture in equal parts of brown noise and blue noise with a little bit of white noise across the board together with high frequency bell-like dissonance that is simultaneously being coupled together with mid-frequency consonance and there seems to be a frequency sweep that only goes up at a rate of twice per second. So basically you can describe textures in that way using consonance, dissonance, and noise and kind of like being aware of the various flavors. And even within dissonance, for example, there is reg like the simplest kind of dissonance would be roughness, so the roughness of sound. Um, but there's actually dissonance of other kinds. There's chaotic dissonance, there is dissonance where beat patterns have like different spacing between them and that's variable. There's dissonance where the width of the of the of the beat patterns changes and that is a different kind of chaotic dissonance. And you can learn to identify all of these different you know shades and flavors of dissonance so then you can report it very accurately. And again, this is something that you can actually quantify skill. It's obviously going to be correlated with things such as you know meditation experience and psychedelic experience, but also, yeah, quite quite frankly, with things such as like working memory and verbal skills, all of them combined and put together, yeah, can give rise to like very high quality phenomenology. Now, once you are really good at describing sound or one of these sense modalities, you can start using that paradigm to describe other aspects of your experience too, such as being able to describe unpleasant tactile sensations in terms of what we call mongrels, which are statistical patterns uh, of consonance, dissonance, and noise um, of various scales. Uh, so there is this device, for example, it's called the, the sub-pack, uh, which basically translates sounds that are between zero and 100 hertz into bodily vibrations. And in a sense, like you can see how the particular spectrum of a sound feels bodily wise and then using that understanding you can take internal feelings let's say i don't know constipation or <laughs> or kidney stone you know it's a worst case scenario or something like that uh or broken bones and things like that and carefully describe what would be kind of the isomorphism to that in the realm of audio and there's more you know you can apply that to for example the phenomenology of scent and if you're interested in scent and actually describing scent, kind of like from first principles, I, I recommend, yeah, uh, watching um, my video on aromatic fougeres. Um, and basically that introduces this whole aesthetic called qualia core. And qualia core is, yeah, basically the aesthetic of describing experiences in such a way that they illuminate our understanding of the nature of consciousness so that yeah, I mean, in my opinion, if somebody is a world-class phenomenologist and super 
super smart, let's say like a von Neumann type person, but also super, super good at phenomenology. And those two things may be somewhat anti-correlated, especially at those levels. Um, my claim would be that they should be able to reverse engineer how consciousness works and all of its laws from something as simple as, for example, smelling a rose or, you know, taking L-theanine or like a very mild nootropic or something like that. Now, of course, we have the benefit of an enormous experience base and, you know, knowing, you know, world-class uh, psychonauts and phenomenologists. And of course, in, in some sense, that's, you know, because the problem is so difficult, <laughs> all of that is super useful information. But I, I, I do claim that in principle, you shouldn't even need it. I mean, it's similar to kind of if you have like a super genius, they should be able to infer the laws of quantum mechanics just by reasoning about the world based on what they observe at the you know macroscopic room temperature level. Of course, it's very difficult and it's much easier to actually, you know, infer quantum mechanics when you have data from particle accelerators, you know, or, <laughs> or cosmological pictures of, you know, uh, gravitational lensing and, and things like that, you know. Uh, from the point of view of kind of like the person who's trying to do it the hard way, hard way that is uh, uh, cheating. But yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, we, we've got to throw everything to the wall and see what sticks. So that's uh, kind of kind of what we're doing. And uh, um, another important aspect of phenomenology and how to make it high quality is, for example, awareness of dynamic system, di dynamic system properties, for example, annealing that um, we essentially think we can replace the mystical experiences questionnaire with an annealing aware type of phenomenological accounting so that you don't say something like, oh, it felt like I was melting in an ocean of being. Instead you say, oh, actually I was experiencing the bubbling up of my stress patterns up to the lowest frequency harmonics. And eventually that discharged into my feeling of the void around me. And you can basically describe what happened in terms of an annealing cycle. Uh, and in that way, you actually connect, you know, information theory and consciousness research and, you know, material science and kind of dynamic systems. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, basically that will be way more correlated, I think, to like actually, you know, neuroscientific measurements or, you know, neuroimaging of what is going on in your nervous system than, you know, the sort of items that appears in something like the mystical experiences questionnaire or anything of the sort. So, yes, I mean, like, essentially, completely new ways of characterizing phenomenology is one of these, I would say, silver bullet, amazing new methods that we are providing at the Qualia Research Institute. Um, from that, I continue on and explain that <laughs> essentially there's also these critical mass aspect of kind of uh, methods. So, <clears throat> I mean, you have probably realized in your life that in the realm of kind of uh, exploring new ideas and, you know, especially when you're doing like paradigmatic science, uh, but even, even in something much more mundane, like um, how to d cook a particular meal or something like that, um, you will notice that the best conversations often happen between people who have complementary knowledge, but they share a threshold number of philosophical background assumptions and are very smart and are very motivated to actually, you know, settle on the proper model. Um, it is not the case 
that if you put a bunch of people with maximally diverse backgrounds and maximally diverse you know models of the world that magic will happen that's just not the case but it's also not the case that if you put a bunch of people who already believe exactly the same thing and have access to the same information also magic doesn't happen right you actually have kind of this goldilocks zone and in my experience the goldilocks zone is actually much closer to the everybody shares background assumptions than everybody thinks differently and when you know when you have a lot of interactions with everybody thinks differently you kind of lower your standards actually for like what good conversations are like is like oh we found some basic common ground and i guess that was a good interaction whereas like no actually if you belong to kind of like a high-end intellectual community <laughs> that actually cares about figuring out the truth yeah, I mean, in the end, your standards for like what a good conversation is will probably go significantly higher up. We're like, no, actually a good conversation where, was where we each updated a deep, you know, node in our high level model of our world. And, and that, you know, when you can have like that level of rapport and, and uh, worldview synchrony with somebody, you know, that's something else that really is something else. It's extraordinary. And again, because of the group mind and because of the memes uh, that we inhabit, that's actually very rare. Um, so in a sense, the critical mass perspective is this idea that um, in order for you to actually study something exotic, like exotic states of consciousness, you require to have kind of um, proximity to it, meaning um, you've got to be close to an event of kind of like a psychedelic consciousness or higher meditation or just coming from a retreat or something like that uh, or literally being in that state like that's another another important uh, possibility um, but then also you require the people to essentially speak the same language and be motivated similarly for example figuring out the truth not signaling how spiritually advanced you are or some anything of that sort again like status anxiety stuff is like no 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 we're here to actually figure out what's true so that we can make the life of everybody way better. <laughs> so when those are aligned, you know, and, and the, th the third component is, yeah, basically you need a, a threshold number of people who kind of keep the fire of knowledge alive so that like, you know, when great discoveries or great perspectives or insights happening in a particular gathering, that they don't just, you know, flicker out and, and get dissolved and people forget about it, but there's actually some track record of what is it that was discussed how we updated our models based on this and cross-examine kind of again do kind of a cross-validation paradigm but at the level of a social group and uh yeah it, it actually does happen to be the case that because of you know qualia computing qualia research institute you know i've been writing about these things for for so many years um one important article for example was like how to secretly communicate with people and lsd uh which is in the in the in the video description um I mean, essentially, yeah, I've been contacted by, honestly, like super smart, like people with a very wide experience base of exotic states of consciousness actually wanting to understand them from a scientific point of view. And we have cultivated a community over the years. And regularly these days, we hold a, in, uh, basically it's a, it's a gathering, it's called Phenomenology Club. It's by invitation only, actually, because Two reasons a confidentiality but b quality you know having high like a quality control essentially only people who are excellent phenomenologists get to be in phenomenology club um 
Now, uh, if you convince me that you're like an excellent phenomenologist and that you actually, you know, share a sufficient number of background assumptions and you actually want to understand things scientifically rather than just buying into some kind of like mystical interpretation or something like that, I might invite you to Phenomenology Club. <laughs> I guess uh, an important step there is, I mean, obviously, write me an email, send me some really good trip reports that you have written um, uh, or like, you know, a video description or, or something like that. Um, and uh, join the Facebook group qual called uh, Qualia Computing Networking um, and uh, answer the questions and agree to confidentiality. And, you know, you, eventually you may get invited to Phenomenolo Phenomenology Club. I might even interview you at Phenomenology Club. Uh, and yeah, I mean, some really cool people are in there who uh, I'm not going to name. But yeah, there's actually a few kind of like, yeah, celebrities in the space of uh, consciousness research, uh, meditation research and, and psychedelic science and so on. But yeah, private meetings, they have to be because there has to be of, of a sufficient quality or otherwise the conversation is just not useful from a scientific point of view. Uh, so another example is like, we, I actually happen to know three different people who each of them have taken 5-MeO-DMT in high doses every day for six months. And in those cases, actually, they are sane and like pretty reasonable, normal people. So <laughs> um, other than, you know, that they are very used to these exotic states of consciousness. And in one of the recent phenomenology clubs, for example, actually brought all those three persons simultaneously and a panel where we can actually ask them questions and show them pictures from our, you know, the, the research that we do and ask them if it checks out and so on. And I mean, actually, it's super encouraging. Like the video, for example, DMT versus 5-MeO DMT or the corresponding article. The people in that panel said it was correct, that actually these differences are like really, really adequate ways of describing the difference between DMT and 5-MeO DMT. Now, I don't necessarily say this in every article or in every video. I don't say, you know, oh, this was confirmed by <laughs> a panel of experts. Again, yeah, in consciousness, <laughs> we could say, oh, you should defer to experts. But yeah, I mean, there's not really, you know, the experts in consciousness. They're not really actual experts in consciousness for the most part. I would trust much more, yeah, the reports of like Daniel Ingram or somebody like that than yeah, an academic philosopher on consciousness for, for the most part. Um, um, so, yeah, Phenomenology Club. And again, because we take seriously, uh, we actually think this is a, I mean, essentially is, 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 is a gold mine and is going to continue generating amazing results and uh, is one of the things that makes uh, QRI so valuable as a, as a community. Um, critical mass, it, it actually contrasts with kind of the other two methods that right now exist. So we have... Um, a, you know, kind of like randomized uh, controlled trials uh, where people, you know, a hundred different people receive LSD and you put them in an fMRI. Most of the times they will not be experienced with this uh, state. Um, and uh, the study will look at, for example, like, oh, how did the amygdala uh, correlate with, um, let's say, like scary music? And was that stronger or weaker during the LSD trip and things like that? They write the paper and they publish it. But they never actually, you know, got the participants to talk to one another. They never actually kind of like aimed to construct knowledge, generate knowledge about this state. All of that is completely lost and, and missed and, and, and forgotten, right? Like there's no follow-up of, of any sort. Like maybe sometimes they might have kind of like 
unstructured interviews and maybe they they might note a little bit is like oh we removed this participant because <laughs> they, they experienced an exorcism and like it was kind of an outlier you know things like that to some extent but really you know 99.9 percent .9 of the experiential data and the phenomenology is actually just lost to the wind when you use this kind of paradigm which is i mean it's it's just the, again like kind of the the remnants of behaviorism the fear of not being taken seriously by the scientific community. Anyway, a lot of things that are like inhibiting. And again, honestly, it's not that bad because like, again, people are so bad at phenomenology, but it is honestly just like missing out on, yeah, potentially like breakthrough, you know, information for, for, for science. The other method that we are very used to that for a lot of people is kind of, you know, the counterculture method is, yeah, you just have like one person who takes, you know, crazy, crazy trips, like either with psychedelics or meditation or whatnot. Um, and then you kind of like read the book that they wrote, you know, in their 70s after a lifetime of exploration. So this is, you know, the case of some somebody like Alexander Shulgin or um, John Lilly uh, or, you know, Timothy Leary or, you know, Richard Alpert and, and so on. Like, yeah, for the most part, this is going to be... Um, how to say it, it is going to be usually somebody who annealed very deeply to a new worldview. I mean, oftentimes it's going to be a narrative arc of like, well, well, I used to buy into what society told me. Then I had these crazy experiences that showed me that reality is much more than it meets the eye, that there's like other dimensions, that there's like other channels, etc. We, we're here for a purpose, some spiritual something. Um, and now here I am. Uh, you know, free from suffering or free from anxiety or whatever it may be, you know, they might sell it in one way or another. Um, and, uh, but the problem though, is that there's no way of verifying it. And also it's very idiosyncratic. So like if you take a Hindu uh, who takes LSD for spiritual purposes, they might say, yeah, you know, every time I take LSD, it becomes obvious that we are all God. You know, we're all Krishna and I'm just like choosing a particular, I'm a tentacle of Krishna or something like that. But if you, if you, you know, give LSD to Derek Parfit <laughs> or a philosopher, they might say like, oh yeah, it actually con confirmed my view of people as just like collections of time slices or something like that. I mean, in, in other words, with psychedelics, like, yes, you can actually learn a lot about consciousness, new information. But because the emphasis tends to be narrative, uh, for the most part, people who take a lot of these substances or who meditate a lot, they tend to actually just anneal into a new exotic worldview that then they stop questioning after a while. Again, because of loss of critical insight and the absence of a super high quality, super smart community of peers, of epistemological peers. And yeah, again, so that's the third one. So just to recap, Critical mass is different because it is keeping the fire of knowledge, kind of this recency and, and exposure to, to, to what we're actually talking about, not just talking about it, you know, academically from an ivory tower, but actually, yeah, no, like people who really know what they're talking about when it comes to these, these states. Um, um, in a high quality, kind of like very smart people and sharing values and philosophical background assumptions, trying to find what's true as a community. Um, versus, yeah, again, like giving, you know, a substance to a hundred people and not caring about what they say, just caring about their, you know, fMRIs 
or just following the life path of a single person like John Lilly. So again, the, the critical mass method, again, completely new in this field. And that is something that we are offering and we are exploring. So that's, uh, that's another one. Um, here's another kind of like really funny extension of these, which is, uh, you know, you probably are acquainted with uh, psychedelic, um, sorry, you're probably acquainted with uh, Mechanical Turk. And the thing that we're innovating is called Psychedelic Turk. But, but yeah, basically Mechanical Turk is artificial, artificial intelligence, <laughs> as, as they describe it. So yeah, basically you do a, a, if you're required to fill out a survey or um, you want to do some research on perceptual tasks or something like that, um, you can get it for pretty cheap if you make it into a website. And then you get people in Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is the service by, by Amazon, um, to basically do those tasks for, let's say, like 20 cents or something like that. And, and the task may take like a couple minutes. Uh, so it's like fair compensation, relatively speaking. And then you can have like hundreds of people. And within an hour or two, you have like all of these data points and then you analyze it. It's actually one of the paradigms that it, I used for my master's. Uh, I was uh, studying uh, pragmatics. Uh, it's part of the field of linguistics and we used to use mechanical Turk quite a bit um, and like yeah a lot of like research uh, nowadays happens via mechanical Turk well the one variable that is common though is that you're getting people who are sober you know and actually you're getting people who are like fairly normal or like kind of like sampled somewhat from the general population except obviously people who are like power users of Mechanical Turk are probably pretty weird people. <laughs> so in that sense, yeah, you're not necessarily sample from the general population, but uh, a lot of the people, people are, uh, and um, uh, you don't get people who are tripping, for example, or people who are like advanced meditators. So the idea of psychedelic Turk is this notion that like, hey, actually there might be a lot of value in exotic states of consciousness for whatever reason, I mean, even just like pragmatically, like nowadays, like if you want to see if an ad will work on drunk people because you plan to show it on the Super Bowl, <laughs> then actually you would perf it would be better if you get a focus group of people who are drunk. So if you could, you know, get in Mechanical Turk, it's like, oh, I want the people who answer the questions to be in a state of drunkness, you know, between two and five drinks <laughs> and that they took them relatively recently or something like that. Um, that itself can be tremendously valuable. Oh, I think I lost my coffee. Oh no, my coffee. Here's my coffee. <laughs> um, so, uh, drunkness, or more recently, you know, like with the acceptance of uh, of uh, marijuana. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of like a reggae concert. You want to advertise, you know, over there. Probably you want to see if your ad actually catches the attention of people who are high, high on pot. Uh, but, you know, from the point of view of science, from the point of view of consciousness research, uh, it would be amazing if there was a service where you can click, oh, I you know, uh, uh, this person has to be on like 200 micrograms of LSD or between 200 and 300 at the peak of the effects or something like that. Then you put out your task out there and within a couple hours, it's been filled out by people who meet that criteria. Well, okay, it's sociologically implausible nowadays, but I think there's uh, probably a way to make it work. Um, you know, if we have like retreat centers in Brazil, for example, where DMT is actually legal, uh, we could set it up that way. And, you know, science, a lot of psychedelic science could be streamlined and made way more efficiently and faster and iterate over if we actually have access to kind of these 
quick way of prototyping experiments. And yeah, I mean, like the closest thing to these within QRI for the time being is QRI's psychophysics toolkit, where basically we are putting out experiments that were designed specifically to generate large effect sizes in exotic states of consciousness. Again, a very different paradigm, right? Like how, in, how people are doing psychedelic science for the most part in academia is that they essentially take tests and experiments that were designed for people who are sober, for example, perceptual tasks, visual perceptual tasks, or, you know, in game theory, kind of like playing, you know, the prisoner's dilemma or something like that. And with an M with a MDMA or something like that. But yeah, again, like all of those are kind of like sober people paradigms. And then you're throwing at them, throwing them at the people who are, let's say on LSD or something like that. I think that's like actually just not very useful, right? Like it's very likely that like, yeah, LSD will impair your reaction time a little bit and it will impair your ability to detect emotions in people and so on. But where it's actually fun and interesting and exciting is the ways in which the states of consciousness are actually performance enhancing. Now, most neuroscience will say like, oh, we gave them an IQ test and people on LSD were a little bit worse on, on their IQ test. It's much better if we say, we gave them a test specifically designed to take advantage of the actual enhancements that come from that state. And hey, in this way, you know, people on LSD turn out to be like actually way better performing than people who were sober. And, and that actually will give you useful information about the computational properties of consciousness. So again, a completely different lens and uh, new way of approaching approaching it. And yeah, I mean, like the, the sort of things that we care about a lot is things such as like the symmetry detection threshold, or for example, visual tracers, the way in which you can encode, you know, stenographic information that way. Um, or for example, like uh, the sensitivity thresholds for various like uh, top-down pattern recognition and basically set up, setting up the task in such a way that actually on LSD, you're able to see legitimate true patterns that are there that somebody sober would actually be missing. So anyway, all of that is really fun. Is a uh, you know, psychedelic Turk. Uh, an interesting thing also that kind of like comes from this is that <laughs> there is ironically, you know, both an instrumental and an inherent value to different states of consciousness. And I would say that with Psychedelic Turk, it would be really fun that it, we would in a sense get an other metric for the instrumental value of particular states of consciousness where, yeah, I mean, nowadays in Mechanical Turk, it's something like, oh, you want your participant to have a PhD? Well, that will cost you extra, you know, like rather than like paying one cent for like a couple minutes of their time, you will have to pay a dollar and a half for a couple minutes of their time because their time is more valuable or at the very least is in high demand and there's low supply. So, you know, you can actually price it higher. Well, how about what is the price? of, you know, a person's uh, LSD trip or like, you know, booking like five minutes of a person's LSD trip or, or something like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, chances are is like for some exotic states of consciousness, for example, free willing hallucinations, like the combination of LSD and ketamine in appropriate dosages, um, that could be priced very highly because it's a, maybe a very important state of consciousness from the point of view of research. So yeah, I mean, if you want to actually study that, you might need to pay extra, but it would be really fun and interesting to see kind of the table of 
supply and demand and the price of different states of consciousness and like hey uh kind of the economics of the states of consciousness is like oh these are weak dmt consciousness is way up in in how much uh it's it's it's, it's costing it's like oh you, you should invest on you know i don't know uh, what, what what was it a uh, ghb consciousness because <laughs> its price is going up <laughs> let's set up a ghb lab anyway this is just kind of like a funny funny implication here but yeah uh the next method this has not been done anywhere to my knowledge but it's just something i would be very excited to do i would actually volunteer to do it which is this concept uh i wrote about called generalized wada test and now the wada test is something i already talked about in the video about whether other people are conscious um and basically it consists of injecting pentobarbital, which is a powerful barbiturate um, into one of the arteries that already in the neck that already goes to only one of hemisphere. So like if you visualize, you know, the cardiovascular system is really cool because like already in the neck, there is basically this V structure and differentiation where some of the blood will go to one hemisphere and the other will go to the other hemisphere. Well, if you manage to inject something already in that division, you will get the drug to only uh, uh, take hold, especially if it's a short acting drug and you do an infusion, which I think is how it's usually done. Um, only one of the hemispheres will be affected by it. So, and traditionally this has been done with, yeah, pentobarbital in order to put to sleep half of your brain and then like do psychological tests on the other half so that we can, in a sense, understand the functional lateralization of the brain. And yes, I mean, typically speaking, the half that can speak and respond to language is only the left hemisphere. Well, not so interesting, right? It is fascinating. What's actually most fascinating here is from a philosophical point of view, this idea that you kind of like become in a sense, yeah, kind of this branching structure and like lefty, uh, when was awake, you know, your left hemisphere didn't know about what righty experienced when it was awake until they both wake up and they can like sync up about what they each anyway like personal identity there's a lot of really crazy kind of uh, implications from this but um uh, <laughs> but where it gets especially exciting is if we generalize it so that rather than like pentobarbital and nothing on the other how about lsd on the left hemisphere and ketamine on the right hemisphere i would be very curious to experiment with that or even just like lsd on the right right hemisphere and sorry lsd on the left hemisphere but not on the other so that basically um or the other way around but yeah basically like have the non-verbal hemisphere affected such that the verbal hemisphere is unaffected and it can report right because one of the problems is like oh if you're in a high dose of ketamine or whatever you can't articulate what is going on to you because your verbal centers are impaired right like but with this system with a generalized water test you could have actually unimpaired verbal systems all the while all this extremely exotic qualia is being streamed into your awareness so yeah i mean as a research paradigm i think this is like an obvious potential huge win and yes i mean with enough funding is <laughs> the sort of thing that completely above board i would absolutely love to actually conduct at a, a, a at a large scale and yeah write a book about you know, what are these hybrid states? You know, I don't know, GHB and DXM in one hemisphere and, um, you know, diphenhydramine and nitrous oxide on the other hemisphere. Yeah, what happens? <laughs> what, what does that feel like? Uh, 
I, I would actually expect this to also provide us very deep insights into valence, actually, because um, if it is as we believe that actually uh, hedonic tone is more or less derived from basically kind of a music theory of interactions and resonances within the nervous system, then yeah, I mean, some drugs will actually um, combine well when they are like in each of the hemispheres uh, and some will not. Like I suspect like some specific kinds of stimulants, for example, that they feel good on their own. If you have one of the stimulants in one hemisphere and the other in the other, they may actually be dissonant with one another, you know, or uh, yeah, I mean, if they, if they affect like the properties of the nervous system in specific ways, one may work as kind of like a shock absorption and the other may be kind of like a shock generator. <laughs> like there might be some interesting, you know, dynamic systems that might emerge and are impossible to generate by just taking those substances simultaneously. But actually kind of like differentiating them this way will allow like interactions and emergent effects that currently have not been explored or have never even happened before. You're generating something fundamentally new. So that is generalized what a test. Now, also as kind of like another set of paradigms um, at QRI, we take very seriously in a sense, analysis of systems based on their resonance, which is yeah uh, already kind of like fairly standard in physics, but not standard at all in neuroscience. And the connectum specific harmonic wave paradigm is one example of something very promising in that space. There is the potential issue though that that paradigm is actually identifying cardiovascular harmonics uh because that's what uh you know fmri is measuring blood oxygenation rather than the electromagnetic field but meg connectum harmonics and also connectum harmonics inferred with eeg and so on yeah but basically uh there is this whole kind of like paradigmatic way of analyzing the nervous system based on resonance and the music theory that arrives from it and that I think, yeah, it's a completely new kind of like way of um, approaching consciousness research. So that's another amazing method. Um, next one is, you know, like in, in programming, you actually have um, pair programming. Like sometimes there's kind of like a lead and a, and a supporter. Uh, and, um, you know, you have like people with uh, are learning from each other. Uh, to be better programmers, like pair programming can be very good. You know, you, you sit down with somebody and, and you're both simultaneously working on the same project um, and you're commenting in real time and, you know, offering suggestions. Well, we don't currently have that for experience design, right? Like it's not very easy to do kind of pair experience design, but with the methods that we are championing, we can actually do that. So. Uh, I was talking about like neurostimulation, non-invasive neurostimulation, like SOPAC. Um, we have this whole system which involves like body vibration and light stroboscopic stimulation and audio stimulation, all of them synchronized with one another. Well, if you have two of those systems and you have somebody who, in a sense, has the control to the dials of, you know, the frequencies, basically the sound design or the waveform design. Um, well, what you can have is two people simultaneously receiving the same input and kind of like standardizing their state of consciousness and both of them in a sense experiencing the same state of consciousness at the same time and uh be able to edit it edit each other's states of consciousness and i think like this yeah in a sense will generate just profoundly novel phenomenological approach because it is allowing these two people to in a sense share 
a vocabulary, generate a vocabulary for like these like subtle variations in, in, in consciousness that happen, you know, when you shift the flicker frequency between 20 and 21 hertz and maybe it gets out of sync. Well, let's find a name for that. Let's call it the Taka Taka effect <laughs> or the Team Team effect. And uh, if you know, let's actually create a lexicon for all of this. And yeah, basically, this whole paradigm is something that we call pair quilia cartography. Again, yes, something that, uh, yeah, I think we will take very seriously and, and I expect, yeah, to be very groundbreaking, actually. Um, next one, uh, and I'm uh, getting close to the end here, is, um, uh, yeah, actually, this is the last one, which is uh, a social technology. I already talked about this, but this is called uh, cognitive sovereignty. But yeah, basically just to emphasize, if you actually want to incentivize like very smart people who actually care about ethics and like having a good impact in the world, not only having an impact, you know, but actually having a good impact in the world, uh, you need to create the right social context for them to actually be motivated to share their ideas and to work with you. So that is what we call cognitive sovereignty. And it has three components, uh, each of them kind of like corresponding to a different you know, stage of life. So one is kind of a the more kid, a kid-like or kind of a children-like, which is a yes and approach to idea generation. And when somebody says something that sounds weird or outlandish or strange, sure, you can point out like, hey, that I have like a strange reaction to it, but I'll assume that there's value in what you're proposing and maybe I can even steel man it or titanium man it or high entropy alloy man it <laughs> improve upon the idea that you suggested even though i may personally not resonate with it right so that could to kind of create a positive feel field in the social environment so that people feel good about sharing you know sometimes yeah sometimes you may share like something that it's in your heart of hearts and you really like, and you, the first thing that you hear is like, no, <laughs> that sounds weird. Yeah, no, you're not gonna be, you're not gonna come back again and again to the same community. So, so that is important. And for sure in neuroscience, in academic, you know, consciousness research, this is not the case. You know, your professor is not going to say yes and to your trip report of like what you, you know, you, on, the week, on the weekend, you took a heat of acid and, and ketamine and you generated a museum of consciousness in your own mind and you found the properties of plasma consciousness to be of this sort and they seem to follow Navier-Stroke's equations. No, your professor is very unlikely to say yes and to that, right? Like it's going to be much more of a you know, this is a serious academic institution. You should be talking. You should not be talking about this, <laughs> which is again so stupid. You're missing out on like very important information. Anyway, I don't take seriously people who dismiss that type of data. So, um, yes, and the second component is which corresponds to kind of the adult in the room, which is a uh, tracking metadata, which is yeah, actually caring about who said what, who is influenced by whom. Uh, to track, in a sense, how the ideas are being forged and created and, you know, developed and, <laughs> and annealed, annealed at a social, in the social context. What are the, in what ways you're creating these shared commons of information, of epistemology, and who is contributing to it? Um, that is important because if 
you don't keep track of that, then people sooner or later will notice like, you know, I provide contributions, but they're not recognized. Or this person takes the credit way over here, <laughs> you know, or, or things like that. So, and you know, and it's fine if you relinquish your, if you say like, hey, forget it. If I said it, I don't care. But most, you know, smart, altruistic people who are kind of, you know, actually serious about the science, they will generally actually care that, you know, they are recognized for the ideas that they provide or for the way in which they're helping other people's ideas and developing other people's ideas and so on. So, so yes, basically being the adult in the room and tracking metadata. And then finally is basically <laughs> be responsible. Actually, you should care about the effects that information has on the world, not only about status and like not only about looking smart or, you know, having your name in a publication or things like that, which, yeah, I mean, in, in academia, the selection pre pressures are like very strong and, and the culture is very much of a, you know, like just publishing a high impact, high impact, you know, journal um, and uh, look for a lot of citations, not like, uh, let's question the current paradigm uh, because it has cracks that are like pretty obvious and let's be responsible with the information that we put out in the world. You know, again, I think I mentioned, yeah, things such as, um, yeah, like augmenting uh, the, the, the capabilities of a virus or something like that. That like, you probably shouldn't be publishing that in, in academic journals. There should be kind of a small, you know, like, yeah, uh, actual like information hazard awareness and information hazard handling so that the information that you put out is in some sense safe, or at least like has been checked for possible, possible misuses. And uh, this is also important because if you don't do this, even if you're just like selfishly caring about, in a sense, like looking smart, eventually, yeah, the people you collaborate with will not be very candid with you because they know that you don't respect, you know, information that you, you, you're kind of like nearly willy about what you share with the world. So having a actual high integrity uh, when it comes to like the information that you put out in the world is yeah, the, the third condition. And those three put together, just to sum summarize really quickly, a yes and approach to kind of creative problem solving and generation of ideas. Second is tracking metadata. And third, being responsible allows, yeah, super high caliber people to be motivated to contribute to the field because A, they will have this positive feeling and you know creativity that comes from the yes and second they know that they will be recognized and third they know that what they share is not going to be misused and those are the conditions that make yeah very very smart yeah ethically aligned people wanting to collaborate so that is also another method <laughs> that we are championing it you know just making cognitive sovereignty very explicit so uh yeah just to summarize real quick i mentioned you know we have <laughs> we take seriously exotic states of consciousness. Again, the fact that these glitches on DMT is really matters. There's undoubtedly a huge discovery to be made by examining that phenomenon more carefully. Second is we have better phenomenology, phenomenology based on, you know, patterns describing in terms of like consonance, dissonance, noise, and breaking it down in terms of annealing dynamics and all of that completely new way of taking seriously consciousness. Uh, the next one is the critical, critical mass. 
of like, yeah, very smart and driven people who actually want to find the truth and who share enough philosophical background assumptions for the conversations to actually provide a way forward <laughs> and, and push the push the boundary. Uh, next one is a psychedelic Turk, which is, yeah, kind of like mechanical Turk, but for psychedelic and exotic states of consciousness, you know, fire, casino, states of consciousness and so on. Next one is generalized what a test, you know, LSD in one hemisphere, ketamine on the other hemisphere. Uh, next one is resonance based analysis of the nervous system and things of that sort. Uh, next one is pair qualia cartography. And finally, we have cognitive sovereignty. And again, this is actually just uh, scratching the surface. It's just the tip of the iceberg. And actually, some of the most exciting new methods are things that we haven't even talked about or written about or made any videos about. So please stay tuned. And hopefully, <laughs> we will continue to develop this field. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in and have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful day or night or midnight or whatever it may be. Just hope that is beautiful and sensual and exotic and awesome. And I'll talk to you another time. Thank you so much. Infinite bliss, everybody.